Good morning, everyone. My name is Penny Podrugovic, and I'll be bringing to you this morning's Bible reading, which comes from Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 1 to 19. If you do not have a Bible, there are Bibles provided at the back of the church, and you may take one if you wish. It is a gift from us. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. Your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for on that day you were born, you were despised. Then I passed by and saw you kicking about in your blood. And as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live. I made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew and developed and entered puberty. Your breasts had formed and your hair had grown, yet you were stark naked. Later I passed by, and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your naked body. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Sovereign Lord, and you became mine. I bathed you with water and washed the blood from you and put ointments on you. I clothed you with an embroidered dress and put sandals of fine leather on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. I adorned you with jewelry. I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace around your neck and I put a ring on your nose, earrings on your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. So you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were a fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth. Your food was honey, olive oil, and the finest flour. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen. And your fame among, spread among the nations on account of your beauty, because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the Sovereign Lord. But you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favours on anyone who passed by, and your beauty became his. You took some of your garments to make gaudy high places where you carried on your prostitution. You went to him and he possessed your beauty. You also took the fine jewellery I gave you, the jewellery made of my gold and silver, and made for yourself male idols and engaged in prostitution with them. And you took your embroidered clothes to put on them and you offered my oil and incense before them. Also the food I provided for you, the flour, olive oil and honey I gave you to eat, you offered as fragrance incense before them. That is what happened, declares the Sovereign Lord. Hey, hello again. Uh, as we said, we are starting a new uh, mini-series just for three weeks. 
and we've called it uh, Divine Design. And so in the next three weeks, we are looking at some of the most uh, contentious and most uh, controversial uh, topics today in the church and in our society. Uh, and it's, I think it's controversial not because it's an interesting topic for, for us, but primarily that because it is such a personal issue. Uh, I'm certain that most of you, uh, if not all of you, would have struggled or are struggling um, in the area of, of your sexuality or your marriage or maybe being single, or at least you might know someone uh, who is. And so I just want to start by saying that I want to acknowledge that uh, in some form uh, today, that this will be such a personal issue uh, because you might be carrying some, some baggages or or had some bad experiences regarding uh, the topic. Um, I remember when James asked me if I'm happy to do this a few months ago, I gladly uh, agreed. And just uh, at the end of this week, really, I was thinking, what did I, why did I say yes to this? Um, that it's such a sensitive topic, uh, it's a lot easier to really brush it under the rug uh, and so that all of us in, in the church can live in peace and harmony. But at the same time, we cannot uh, shy away to one of the biggest discussion in our society. Uh, so with that, with that intro, uh, let's start by asking for God's help. Heavenly Father, we ask that you will speak to us now through your word and my preparation, but mostly by your spirit. Lord, bring us conviction and clarity and transformation. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, over the last uh, several years, our understanding of, of gender and, and human sexuality has really undergone a profound uh, transformation. Uh, it's still shifting today and changing so quickly that it's actually hard to catch up on what is the latest. Uh, but just to kind of paint a picture, uh, it was just in 1973 when uh, homosexuality was removed as a mental illness category in the area of psychology, in the DSM-5. And so prior to that, any person that struggles with the same-sex attraction, uh, they're often marginalized and persecuted and discriminated for their orientation. Uh, even Christian churches have been part of this problem, often mistreating people that might identify with the same-sex attraction. Even evangelical Christians were at the forefront of hate speech and abuse towards these people. But then, as we've seen at the turn of the century, we've seen radical changes. Countries starting, started legalizing same-sex marriage. There's been a high increase in visibility in media. Uh, and because media says so, there's been a higher acceptance in our society as well. But when you fill out a form now, it's no longer just male or female. There's other boxes to tick that even during the census, there's a lot more options to choose from. And even in the last decade, any non-binary gender is not only tolerated, but we've actually started celebrating it. We've seen the rise of Mardi Gras in Sydney, gay pride parade in Melbourne. And so I feel like the pendulum has swung completely to the other side, that the issue used to be taboo and stigmatized. Now it's commended and it's honored. And so the language, sorry, the landscape of, of gender and sexuality has completely shifted, and it's still shifting that many of us are really left 
perplexed, wondering what to believe, what to think, where to find truth. And so in this complexity of, of evolving topics, we're not sure where to turn. And so 50 years ago, it seems like the topic was, was simple. It was black and white. Now it has really turned complex because different fields actually interacting and intersecting. The, the debate is happening in the, in the realms of medical biology and psychology. And then you pour in politics. And then you uh, include ethics and then theology. And so as Christians, we, we're left wondering, what, what do we believe? How do we respond? How, how do we act? And as I said, it's not often, it's of, often it's not just for other people. Often the struggle is within our own circle, within ourselves. And again, not just Christians looking for answers. Our society is asking the same thing. They're looking for a way to find harmony in our society without compromising truth and morality. That things are changing so quickly that we don't know where to turn because there's so much uncertainty happening so quickly. And so today, I want to give you a biblical perspective on sexuality. Uh, but here's the deal. Because some of you might think, oh yes, RJ will preach the, the, the traditional view of the importance of marriage in a heterosexual or, or opposite sex relationship and marriage. And, and amen to that. Um, well, let me be upfront here that... Firstly, that is what I believe. And as a church, uh, if you go to our onboard course, we'll, that will be upfront that that is where our church stands. But at the same time, I want to show you for the next three weeks, not just for today, that though that is what we believe is biblical, often we've elevated that belief to the point that we've lost the bigger picture of things and we've actually created an idol out of that. And so some of you might think that when I finish here today, that I haven't preached enough to push the importance of that. But I want to show you, as important as that is, that, that there is a bigger and greater point to show. And I want to move us today in these three headings. The complexity, today's complexity of our sexuality. Secondly, the divine purpose of our sexuality. And just very briefly, the hope of restoration for, for sexuality, okay? So today's complexity, divine purpose, and the hope of restoration. All right, let's begin. Firstly, the complexity of sexuality. So as, as I've said before, that it's really complex. Uh, but here's a working definition of the word sexuality that we're going to use. It's, uh, it's from a government website, Better Health of uh, Victoria. It says that sexuality... Is about a person's sexual feelings, thoughts, attractions, and behaviors towards other people. Then it continues to say, it's, it's, it was pretty long, but then later on it says that, that your sexuality can actually change over time. That it can be confusing, so don't worry if you're unsure. See, the first part is already complicated because... It's right in saying that everyone will be different in their sexual feelings, their thoughts, their attractions, and their behaviors towards other people. That you might be heterosexual today or you're straight, but what you find attractive can still differ from someone else. That what you find beautiful and appealing in a person is absolutely different or, or subjective compared to someone else. 
that we differ to what we are attracted to, whether we're attracted to a certain personality or the, the symmetry of their face or their gender, that we all have different attractions and feelings. Let's acknowledge that. And so let's admit that everyone deep inside has different feelings and attractions towards another person. And so what society have done is not, is not only acknowledge all that and identify all these differences, but we've started labeling it. Hence, I think that we, I think currently we have LGBTQIA+. That is lesbian or gay, then we add bisexual to that, then we recognize the transgender, then we include the queer, not forgetting the intersex and the asexual, and to avoid the risk of leaving anyone else, we add plus. But see, we also recognize the source and the cause of this different sexuality. That there's an ongoing debate. Is it because of nature or is it because of their nurture? And so in church, I feel like we, we tend to want to be nurture. So we can say that these people, they're attracted to the wrong sex because it's their choice. But I want to acknowledge that in, in the study of psychology, the major, major studies say that it's not a choice, that people make this that people have this non-binary attraction because it's intrinsic to them. That maybe you've heard personal testimonies from a friend as well. But at the same time, all these studies acknowledge the complexity of how development and environment play a big part in someone's sexuality. That what have you been exposed growing up, it might be even abuse, can strongly shape your sexuality. So on top of that, sexuality will differ in every country and every continent. That our understanding of sexuality here in Australia will very much be different of how it is viewed in different parts of Asia. And again, it will be different to the understanding of sexuality in the Middle East. That what is the sexual norm really depends on the current culture and geography and social construct. Now, this complexity is not just about personal autonomy because we know it affects communities and it affects societies and it affects nations. And right now, we're finding it really, really hard to navigate what this means in our society. For example... Competitive sports, right? We want to be inclusive, but we also want to be fair. That the issue of biologi biological male competing in women's sports is such a big debate at the moment and uh, such a big problem that we have. The use of inclusive pronouns and how that is being mandated in some countries. Public restroom, how people can feel comfortable and safe. Education and, and school curriculum. Should the government enforce something like this? And what's the implication for families and for our home? Express, expressing religion, political legislation, family dynamics, healthcare and mental health. See, you can't just say that your sexuality is about your personal preference and expression because it only affects you. No, no, no. It affects society. It affects nations. So then going back to the definition, the second part, then it says your sexuality can change over time. See how fluid our sexuality can be. It's true that what we might find attractive today can change over time. And so then we're always playing catch up with our personal feelings and also the response 
of our society. But do you see the very source of this complexity? It's, it's really subjectivism. It's, it's the post-modernity idea that since we don't know what's true, let's just create our own truth for ourselves. Uh, I remember um, when my kids are younger, we used to watch all sorts of kids' shows and movies. In the Smurf movie, this was more than 10 years ago, I think it was 2011, uh, one of the Smurfs, I can't remember exactly where in the movie. I didn't want to watch it all over again just for the sake of this illustration. But one of the Smurfs were, were searching their, their personal identity. And then he was told this. All right? He said, you can be anything you want to be. Now, when I was growing up, the message is you can be whoever you want to be. Because often the, the focus is on, on the job. You can be a doctor if you want to be. You can be a professional basketball player, RJ, if you want to be. But today, we've moved a step up. You can be anything you want to be. Now, the movie might not making a political or social statement. I don't know. But can you see how we've shifted our worldview, our philosophy, to the importance of self-expression, that whatever makes you happy, you make that you. You make that your identity, the very center and pinnacle of your existence. And of course, this has been strongly expressed in sexuality, that we are encouraged to find whatever really makes us happy when it comes to our sexuality, because that is the real you. That's the message that we're getting. That sexuality, according to our Western society, is all about what you feel deep inside, because that is what is right. So everyone is free to look for that. And any, if, if, if anyone is free to be anything they want to be, imagine the future complexity that we have to face because it just opens up the argument for anything. Not just love whoever, but love whatever, however, wherever. But see, my point is, the point is that the very root core of the problem is the lack of objective truth. To say sexuality is defined by an individual will mean we will always have disagreement with that, with a definition, and how it should be expressed. But most of all, it's always going to be an ongoing argument of what is morally right and wrong. Or in other words, let me put it in theology. In other words, if there is no God, if there is no creator, if the universe is born out of accident, it means that there is no absolute truth. There is no objective purpose in life. And so secular society will say, it's right that we need to figure out what is best for the majority. We need to determine what makes us happy. We need to determine what is right and wrong for ourselves, that we can do whatever we want to do because self is the highest good and personal happiness and fulfillment will be our greatest glory. But if there is a God, it means that he created for a purpose. It means that he created sexual identity and sexuality with some objective truth and objective purpose. And so it's not up to you or me to determine what is right and wrong, but it is what God says it is. That he determines, and the, and he determines the boundaries of sexuality and morality and marriage and so on. That he will have the final say. 
that if you take God out of the picture, again, self will be the greatest good. That feelings is the only source of truth that we have. But if there is a God, then truth has to come from the creator. But let me pause here. Because I hope you can see how this is very much foundational. So you can argue with someone about what is right and wrong when it comes to sexu sexuality and same-sex marriage and so on. But if they don't even believe in a God or, or the God of the Bible or in the Bible as we do, then really there's no argument. There's no point. Because often the argument that we have goes like this, that your view of sexuality is wrong and it's sinful. Why? Because God says so in the Bible. Now, what is the common and logical response of a non-Christian to that? Well, I don't believe in your God, and I don't believe in your Bible, so why are you forcing your beliefs on me? And to be honest, they're right. You cannot force them to accept your understanding of morality if you don't have the same source of truth. See, the very first step in winning someone, I believe, to the faith is not just changing their beliefs and their actions and their sexuality. It's helping them to see that there is a God, helping them to see that God has created them with a purpose and a plan, and they are part of that wonderful plan. The first battle that needs to be won over is that there is objective truth that comes for God, from God, because left to ourselves, we will just keep creating our own definitions of sexuality, our own definition of love, our own definition of purpose and morals, and we'll, it will always be changing. And it will always be unstable. That if you are a Christian and someone asks you, what, what do you believe about same-sex marriage or trans, transgenderism or inclusive pronouns? Maybe you throw the, questions the question back at them. Well, do you believe in a God? That's the starting point. You can't argue about the implications of ethics and principles of life if there is no common understanding of the origin of life. And see, that's why one of the very foundations of the Christian faith is that God created the world, but more so God created human beings in his image, that he modeled us out of his image, that our blueprint is from his own identity and his own features and his own glory, which means as human beings, we have this intrinsic value. That Christian faith will say that you are a pers person, that you are worthy, not because you are physically beautiful, not because you are smart or that you have a good job or that you have wealth. The Christian faith says that you are valued because you are made in the image of God. That's the starting point. But what does our society value? What gets the most followers in TikTok and Instagrams and so on? It's beauty. It's wealth. It's talent. It's prestige. It's fame. That's what builds attraction and fame and honor. And so the Christian hope is you are made in the image of God. That's your starting point. Your, your sexuality is made for a purpose by God. Your desire, your passion, it's not an accident, but it's significant. Which leads us to our second point, the very purpose of our sexuality. If there's a God, why did he give us this strong sexual desires, these unique, as we said, sexual desires. Now, let me give you a few biblical reasons, uh, but I don't think it's the primary reason, but they're still biblical. Uh, and again, I know some will definitely might disagree with, with me, but just bear with me. Firstly, 
Um, during creation in Genesis, we see God creating mankind. He created them male and female. And we can see right away that Adam sees Eve. He falls in love and they are united. That we have these uh, sexual desires and passion because God has made us to be attracted to other people for us to make a lifelong commitment of love. Marriage. That's one of the reasons. But marriage cannot be the primary and only reason because we know in the new heavens and the new earth, Jesus says, you won't be married. It cannot be the primary reason because singleness is actually valued in the Bible, as we will be talking about uh, in, in the next, uh, next week. We'll talk about marriage and singleness next week. Or, or if sexuality is created for the sake of a committed relationship, why did God make them male and female? Why, why make them different? Why can, can't we make a commitment out of love if everybody is just neutral in their gender? Well, another reason is that our sexuality is given in order to have children. That we are made biologically male and female, as God says, for procreation. That we have, sexually, we have sexual urges because it can lead to reproduction, to multiply and fills the earth as God has commanded. But again, that cannot be the primary reason for our sexuality because some people choose not to have children, but it doesn't mean that they're sinning. And some people are not able to have children, and it doesn't mean that their relationship is invalid before God. So a third reason for our, for our sexuality has to be pleasure. That our sexual desires is given by God to enjoy a committed and he committed heterosexual relationship. Now again, I'll be upfront here that here in Tungabi Baptist Church, we believe that God has created us biologically male and female and reserved the, 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 the sacrament, the sanctity of marriage for a heterosexual monogamous relationship. Again, we believe that, that that is the boundaries that God has given to enjoy sexual pleasure. Now, Again, you can talk to me later on why we believe that and so. But again, my aim is not to argue about that. I want to show you something more important. So again, just bear with me. Because so far we said that our sexuality is given by God for marriage, for the sake of children, and for pleasure. That if you're sitting there and you're married, you're able to have kids, and you enjoy your spouse, that you might be proud of yourself that you're ticking all boxes. But what if, what if you're married, but you can't have children? Or you're not enjoying sex for all sorts of reasons. What if you are single and you can't express yourself sexually? What if you're divorced or you're widowed and you still have these strong sexual desires? What if you're never going to get married because you're, you're sexually attracted to your own sex and you believe that, again, that as Christians, same-sex relationships are not open to you? So here's the big problem. If sexuality is just for for marriage, having children, and pleasure with a husband and wife, why has God burdened us with sexual desires and sexuality outside of that? Or to put it another way, why can't God only give us sexual, sexual desires once we are married and only while we're married? Why burden everyone else and make them struggle trying to suppress outside of that? Well, as I was kind of wrestling with this, I found this in John Piper's book. In his book, Sex and the Supremacy of Christ. He said this, that God made us powerfully sexual so that he will be more deeply knowable 
And we were given the power to know each other sexually so that we might have some hint of what it would be like to know Christ supremely. Now let me just allow you to soak that in. He's saying and he's arguing, and I think he's right, that the reason we have sexual desires and sexual drive is to point us to his love and to communicate and to show to us what God ultimately gives and satisfies us with in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or that God gave us sexuality so that we can understand his passionate love for us and for us to feel the pain that he feels when we are unfaithful. And see, this is why sin in the Bible is described as unfaithfulness to God. And that's why I asked to read Ezekiel 16. It might be a weird kind of story to, to read, but it's very relatable because it shows how our sexual desires can be similar to God's deep feeling. That the story is quite graphic and it's quite confronting of how God fell in love with his people and he made that commitment in verse 8. He said that I'll, I spread the corners of my garment over you and covered your naked body. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant, a promise, or a marriage with you, declares the sovereign Lord. And you became mine. And then it talks about how God lavished Israel with all different gifts and blessing. Verse 14 and your fame, it spread among the nations on account of your beauty, because the splendor I have given you, your beauty perfect, declares the sovereign Lord. See, it's the language of attraction, of feeling, of passion. And it's throughout the Bible, in a way, it's quite sensual and it's quite sexual. But when Israel turns away from God, you can read the whole chapter later on when you get home. But when Israel turns away from God, listen to the language. These are, we didn't read it, but verse 21. You slaughtered my children and sacrificed them to the idols. Verse 30. I am filled with fury against you, declares the sovereign Lord. When you do all these things, acting like a brazen prostitute. Verse 32. You adulterous wife. You prefer strangers to your own husband. Again, if, if you read the whole chapter, you will understand the sense of hurt, the sense of jealousy and anger that God is experiencing and expressing after pouring out his love to the Israelites. This is what he gets, he says. And see, we can relate. We can understand what God feels because we can relate through our sexuality. We understand love and commitment and passion and loyalty because we carry the same feelings. And the Bible says that is exactly how God feels when you and I turn away from him. See, we often see sin as breaking the rules, but we don't see it as being unfaithful and hurting God's feeling. And yet that is how the Bible often portrays our sin spiritual unfaithfulness, spiritually cheating against God. Because as we've been saying, that sin is when we place ultimate value and worth on something else aside from God. It's when we find our ultimate sense of joy and in our worth and our purpose aside from God. It deeply hurts our creator 
Because he has created us to enjoy him and to find all that in him. For example, if, you know, if, if I, being married, if I find sexual fulfillment outside of my marriage, if I find emotional intimacy aside from my wife, or if I seek enjoyment and satisfaction from other people or even other things, doesn't my wife have the right to be jealous? See, we understand that. And that is how exactly the Bible describes God's love for us and our sin against God. Again, we were created in the image of God. Therefore, our strong sexual emotions is really, in a sense, derived from the very character and the love of God. So when we feel the pain of unfaithfulness, it's a reminder of how much God is hurting, but a lot, lot more than we can understand. Our sexual desire, in fact, any desire that we have really points back to God. Even our sexuality points back to the worship of our creator. For example, wh why do we desire money? What's so good about money? What does wealth bring? Well, it gives us security. It gives us a, a, a position where you don't need to worry about anything for the future. That it gives a false sense of security and assurance. What does God offer? Ultimate security. He offers eternal life. That's the ultimate security. And yet we have, we have gone away from God and seek something else to find security. Why do we desire fame and prestige and power? Because it makes us feel that we are wanted, that we are significant, that, we are, that we're a somebody, that our lives matter and we're making a difference and impact. What does God offer? He gives us ultimate significance to be a son and a daughter before God. What else would you want? What else would you need, God says? Why do we have sexual desires, again, for, for intimacy, for, for ecstasy, for deep passion and pleasure? Isn't that exactly what God offers? So again, our sexuality is a gift for us to enjoy along with other things in life. But once we use our sexuality to find our ultimate identity, to find purpose and our security, we make idols out of relationship. We make idols out of beauty. We find addiction in, in momentary pleasures, we can even make idols out of family. Our sexuality is broken because we have placed things and people where God is supposed to be. God gave us sexuality not to torture us as we struggle to express it. That we have sexuality so that he can best communicate to you the full intensity of his love for you. So that you can better appreciate how much he can't take his eyes off you. That he was willing to send his one and only son to redeem you. That's what it communicates. See, our sexuality is broken because our aim is to fulfill our sexuality outside the boundaries of what has given us as a gift. But more so, we have made an idol out of sexual desires. So it affects us personally. It affects our family. It affects our community. It affects our nation. But most of all, it affects our relationship with God. But look at how Ezekiel 16 ends. And this will be our last point. The hope of restoration. And again, we'll, we'll keep talking about this and coming back to it uh, in the following weeks. In verse 59 and 60, this is, what, this is what God, how God ends it. I will deal with you as you deserve because you have despised my promise, my oath, by breaking the covenant. Yet 
I will remember the covenant I made with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Notice the, the complexity of that. God says, I will treat you what you deserve. That's, that's justice, that's wrath, that's hatred. But then right after that, God says, I will remember my promise, my covenant, and make it last forever. What covenant is that? Well, in, back in verse 8, God says, I will make you mine. What's that? That's, that's love, that's mercy, that's compassion, that's grace. And so we're left with it. How can God show intense justice and hatred towards those who have been unfaithful towards him? But at the same time, demonstrate intense love. Well, there's only one way, and we've seen it through the cross. Through the Son, through Jesus Christ, He faced the ultimate justice of God, facing the wrath of God on the cross. Why? So that we can receive the intense love of God. That the only way to restore our sexuality is if we get back to the proper image of God. And the only person that can help us is Jesus Christ, who brings us absolute truth and the one who bears the image of the father yet for our sake he 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 takes our spiritual unfaithfulness our sexual history he gives us his purity see all our sexual sins our lust our fantasies our addiction our unfaithfulness our selfishness is all put on christ and then we receive his righteousness his holiness his commitment his loyalty to god the father Without God, there's no truth. But truth is not enough to save us because truth only reveals our failings. We need our Savior, Jesus Christ, who not only showed what it means to be human, but lived it out perfectly for our sake so that we can enjoy the perfect and intense love of God for all eternity. That's what it communicates. Church, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we help us to to see that first. Help us to understand your, your great love for us. Help us to understand the, the truth that you have given us so that we can live in, in worship, we can live in, in joy, knowing and loving you. Father, through our sexuality, help us to, to understand you, your intense love for us, and help us to share that wonderful love to others. This we pray in Jesus' name.